Daniel 1, I'm sorry, Daniel 2, verses 1 through 23. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning his, this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning that you would give us clarity and understanding, application of these words, Father. Teach us the meaning of them. Teach us, O oh Father, how they apply to our hearts and lives. And Father, extract truths. Give us principles. Give us everything, O oh Father, that 
you have indeed ordained for these passages. We want it all, O Lord. And we pray, O Father, that you would give it to us and give it to us in such a way that it's transforming. We ask, O Father, we'd not just be hearers of these words, but as we go forth from this place, we would be found to be doers as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Life is full of tough problems. I don't have to tell you that. So you all know that. Uh, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation. Every time I read that verse or I uh, quote that verse, I always think of a story. I don't know. It's probably been about 10 years ago. We were pouring concrete in one of the buildings that my brother uh, was building in his backyard. And when this, this, I think we were pouring, I think the pour was like November or December. And uh, you'll recall when the cement truck showed up, as soon as he backed in off of the, uh, the street, the, uh, the back two tires sunk into the ground clear up to the axle. And that was all the further that this truck was able to go. Now the concrete is probably, I don't know, 100 feet maybe uh, from where it was supposed to be. Uh, fortunately, there were a couple of front end loaders around, and uh, uh, my father was in one, my brother was in the other one, and uh, they were pouring concrete into the uh, front end loaders and then bringing the concrete into, the, uh, into the, the pour where me and my grandfather were standing in there with rakes, raking it into uh, place. And I remember saying to my grandfather that morning, Jesus said, uh, in this uh, life, we're going to have troubles. Uh, it's good that we can look back on that and we can kind of smile. Uh, that's all behind us and it turned out well. Uh, but uh, Friday morning, my heart really sunk for the parents of those missing teens that were lost somewhere along the Atlantic coast, uh, somewhere around, uh, off the Florida coast. You've probably seen in the, the headlines those two 14-year-olds uh, uh, life is uh, it's full of troubles. It's full of trials. It's full of tough problems. Uh, in Jesus' words, in the word you'll have tribulation, the key word there is a word It's kind of hard to pronounce. It's called flipsis. If you think of flip, you take the F out, you put a T-H in, it's flip, uh, flipsis. Uh, it means to be pressed. It means to be pressed all around. It means to be oppressed. It means to be in distress. It means to be uh, really between a rock uh, and a hard place. I, I read somewhere recently that on the average, every six months, we face some kind of family difficulty, financial difficulty, emotional difficulty, work-related difficulty. And I recall reading that as a... You know, I think that's got to be spot on as we can go through a few months and really everything be kind of running smooth and then something happens, doesn't it? One after another, after another, after another. They vary in intensity. They vary in seriousness. But nevertheless, we find ourselves really just going from one problem to the next in this life, do we not? Life is full of tough problems. How do we survive this? How do we cope with this? How do we get on with this? Well, Daniel chapter 2 gives us a lot of information about how to do this. In fact, the book of Daniel 
has lots to say about surviving life's problems. In fact, the title of this morning's message is Surviving Life's Problems. How do we survive life's problems? And in our text this morning, we're going to see two different approaches in how to uh, attempt to survive life's problems. Two different approaches, if you will, uh, to facing life's difficulties, problems, tragedies, what have you. Uh, the first one, uh, for lack of a better word, I, I want to call it uh, the world's approach. Uh, the world's approach. Uh, the second one, uh, I, I have spent a little more time thinking about a title for it. I want to call it Daniel's approach. Not because Daniel is the only one who uses it, but I want to call it Daniel's approach because I want that etched in your mind so that later down the road, if the average is correct, if life is going wonderfully for you right now, uh, between now and the next six months, by average, you're going to be facing something. You're going to think Daniel's approach. Why do I want you to think Daniel's approach? It was, oh yeah, Daniel chapter 2. That's where we get this from, Daniel chapter 2. I want you to be able to go to the Bible. I want you to be able to see for yourself this approach. So we'll call it Daniel's approach. And we'll use these two, to, these two approaches to serve as our outline this morning as, a, as we make our way through Daniel's material. Now, the Holy Spirit gives us the world's approach first, so let's take it first. If we started verse 1, we're told in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, very early in his reign, he reigned for a long time, very early in his reign, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has some dreams. We're told that his spirit was troubled. We're told that his sleep left him. Uh, here we find a king, really at this point in time, uh, probably the most powerful man in the world at that particular point in time. If not, well on his way. He's conquering everything that came into his path. Uh, and here he is, troubled, we might say insecure, uh, and sleepless. And we might think, well, what's the big deal? Okay, so he had a couple of nightmares. You know, walk it off, Nebuchadnezzar, shake it off. Well, to the ancient Babylons, like many others in ancient culture, the ancient Egyptians, uh, dreams weren't so easily shaken off. It was believed that uh, dreams were portholes, if you will, into the future or into the destiny that the gods would communicate to the uh, ancients by way of dreams. They would uh, communicate uh, fortunes or disasters that rest ahead. Uh, so these dreams were taken very seriously by these ancient kings, ancient nobles, ancient people, period. So here Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream. He can't make sense of it. He doesn't know the meaning of it. And it's got him really rattled. He's anxious, he's insecure, and he's not getting much sleep. And uh, those uh, who have gone without much sleep know that that has a tendency to make you a bit grouchy and a bit grumpy. And as we're going to see, he is a little bit grouchy and a little bit grumpy. Uh, now, to find relief, verse 2, the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they come in and they stand before king, the king. Here they are in the situation room, if you will, in the king's palace. And it's interesting. I, you know, the, the verse number two could really have just easily been written. Then the king commanded his wise men. But it's not how it reads, is it? 
Notice how verse 2 reads, The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. These are four categories of people who would make up uh, the wise men of the land, if you will. And I I, want to point this to your attention because I don't know if you've observed this, but when the Holy Spirit inspires the biblical authors to write, he does so with a marvelous economy of words, meaning that the text is often quite brief, actually. Sometimes I'm amazed by the stories in the Bible of how brief they are, yet how profound and complete it is. When God speaks, He doesn't need to use a lot of words. He doesn't need to babble on like preachers do. Uh, He can simply say a few words, and He says a lot with a few words. I'm glad somebody got that. I see a couple of smiles. He says He can say things so succinctly. And here in verse 2, we have... We, it could have read, the king commanded his wise men, because that's who the king is summoning. He's summoning the wise men. But it reads, he summoned the, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. Why is he giving us this list? I think what the Holy Spirit is showing us and teaching us is that the king commanded all of the resources that were at his disposal into his situation room to handle this matter. All of them. Everyone, this is priority number one here. We've got to get to the bottom of this dream. Now, who are these characters? Who are these wise men? Who were these? Well, they were the leading experts of the day. Uh, the leading experts of the day. And interestingly enough, it's kind of fascinating what they did. Uh, they, they would study dreams. And I presume they studied the dreams of people who were in positions of power. They would study the dreams of monarchs and nobles and kings and what have you. And they would carefully document the dreams that they had. Then they would read the newspapers. And they would try to compare the headlines with the dreams. And they would try to uh, discern, okay, what does this dream meant? Well, we don't really know, but let's see how it works out. And let's, let's analyze it. Let's see what happens. And then they would... They would read the headlines and then they would take the dream and they would take the headlines, they'd put them all together and they'd come up with these formulas and eventually they ended up with all of these books called a bunch of dream books, if you will. And uh, uh, when they had a dream, they would say, okay, that dream kind of sounds like this dream here. Uh, They'd thumb through their books and say, okay, here was this dream and after this dream happened, this is the events that took place and they had these these formulas and they had all of these these, uh, dream books put together and that's, that's how these Uh, These individuals made their living out of their dream books. So Nebuchadnezzar calls these characters. And, you know, looking around at some of your faces as I describe this thing, it sounds bizarre, doesn't it? I mean, this sounds like really bizarre, and it sounds really antiquated. But, uh, you know, before I move on, I just want to point out to you, we have these folks with us today. This really hasn't changed if you ever hear the phrase, they say, there's just a little phrase, they say, you know, you shouldn't eat any eggs. Why shouldn't you eat eggs? I don't know. That's what they say. Don't eat any eggs. Uh, yeah, it's okay to eat eggs. Just don't eat the yolk. You can eat the whites. Why? Well, that's what they say. Uh, you can have caffeine. Um, caffeine's good for you. Nope, nope. Don't have any caffeine. Ah, a little caffeine. Okay, which is it? No caffeine? 
Lots of caffeine, a little caffeine? I don't know, that's what they say. Some say, well, you know, all your problems stem, uh, stem back to the relationship you had with your mama. Sorry, mom. No, that's not it. Your relation, your, all your problems really stem from your environment. And then still another one says, no, nah, no, nah, it's none of that. It's just chemistry. You're just a bag of chemicals. If you're having problems, because the chemistry's all wrong. We just got to get the chemicals right, and, and uh, there you go. Um, that's what they say, isn't it? You ever stop to wonder who they are? I mean, they are everywhere, actually. Who are they? I don't know. That's they. That's what they say. They're the wise men and the wise women, leading experts in all these various fields. When my friend uh, Mark Dunn came over to the States from Ireland, from the UK, one of the things that he was really captivated by, and it he really would require somebody to come from another country to this country really to see this, he goes, you know, you guys don't just have news. Because you have news and you have this panel. You got news and commentary on the news. The news and commentary. You got this panel. Well, who's the panel? Those are the wise men and the wise women who sit on the panel. And they tell us what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, and they tell us how things are going to turn out. Who are they? I don't know, but that's what they say. You see, we've got these characters with us today. Every culture has had these characters. What's Nebuchadnezzar do? He's got a big situation here. He calls the they, if you will. He calls his wise men into his council. And then he does something that's kind of unique. In verse 3, the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now, the, the wise men, notice here in verse 4, simply says, then the Chaldeans. Okay, what's meant by Chaldeans here? The wise men. You know, no long list now. The Holy Spirit's already made his point. God's brought all, or Nebuchadnezzar's brought all of his resources in. They're now in front of him in the situation room. And they say, okay, you've had a dream. All right, we understand. That's our specialty. Tell us what the dream is, and we'll interpret it. Ah, here's where it takes, a, here's where it takes an interesting little turn. In fact, they say to the king, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream. We'll show the interpretation. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. You tell me the dream, and I'll know that you can give me the interpretation. You tell me the dream. And then he says, uh, really, uh, if you look at verse 5, he says, the word for me is firm. If you, do not make the no if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. You, you remember last week when I told you that I think Nebuchadnezzar would have been a tough guy to work for? I had verse 5 in mind when I said that. Could you imagine hearing this? This is a bad day at the office here. Tell me the dream. If you don't tell me the dream, I'm going to tear you apart limb from limb, and I'm going to make your houses a ruin. Sometime this afternoon, get an old King James Bible out and read the King James translation of this. He says, I'm going to make your houses a latrine, is what he's saying. We're going to destroy this. Your house is going to be a latrine when we're done with it. You imagine coming home from this day. Wife saying, okay, sweetie, how was your day? Oh, today's not so good. <laughs> Today hasn't been so good. In fact, I think, you know, your cousin Rita that's uh, out of town who lives out like in the middle of Siberia somewhere, it might be a good time for you to go pay a, an extended visit with her. Uh, this is really bad. 
Of course, verse 6, if you show the dream and its interpretation, you can receive gifts and rewards, great honor. That's really kind of meaningless. They're going to be unable to do it. They're going to be unable to... Who, who can tell another person what his dreams or her dreams are? In verse 7, they answered a second time, the wise men, that is. They said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show its interpretation. Notice how the king answers here. He says, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you don't make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. I can remember reading this years ago and I can remember really giggling and laughing uh, at this verse. It's like, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is turning to these guys, but he doesn't really buy their stuff, does he? You know, it's, it's kind of comical in a way. Uh, it doesn't seem that Nebuchadnezzar really trusts these characters, does it? It doesn't seem like he's really buying all these dream books and dream stuff and all this uh, hogwash. Um, how do they respond? The Chaldeans, they answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Fair enough, right? This is a problem. This is really a problem. Notice how the world is handling it. Nebuchadnezzar has a lot of resources at his disposal. If Nebuchadnezzar calls you to his kingdom, calls you into his situation room, you want to know what happens? You go to his situation room. Nobody's going to say, well, sorry, I'm a little busy right now. I can't make it. No, everybody's in there. He has all of these resources at his disposal, yet they're not enough, are they? They're simply not enough. There's no way that they can do these things. This is, a, this is a classic example of how the world handles its problems. Classic example. I'm gonna, let, let's put this into contemporary terms. I, I got a, a, good, a good example to put this in, in, in contemporary terms. Over the last couple of years, public confidence in government has swung. I mean, we all know this. Public confidence in is, government is at an all-time low, is it not? How many people do you know are really confident and our government's ability to do this and to do all the things that they promised to do. I can see on your faces, yeah. Your facial, facial expressions probably look just like mine. Yet, every time something happens, what does our culture do? Leans on government. They need to do something. Who? They. Oh, it's them again. They. Who are they? Oh, it's them characters. They? Yeah, they need to do something. Well, wait a second. They haven't really been able to do anything in the past. What makes you think they're going to be able to do anything in the future? You see, see what happens to the world? It leans on resources it doesn't really trust in. It leans on resources it's not really buying into. And what is the result? What is the consequence of this? Anxiety. It should be no, no mystery why we are such an anxious culture today. We have so many 
uh, so much, so many things triggering anxiety going on in our, in our culture right now. It should be no secret, no mystery. It was why we're so anxious. What's, what's Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to this? Look at verse 12. Because of this, the king was what? He's angry and furious. He's anxious. He's not sleeping too good. He's troubled. He's angry. He's furious. And guess what? Now he's violent. Look at verse 12. He orders that the men of Babylon be destroyed. This is the result of handling problems the world's way. Sleepless, troubled, angry. People are really angry today. Lots of people are really angry today. Distress and ultimately death. Okay. Let's look at Daniel's approach because Daniel enters into the scene in verse 13. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, it's not hard to see that Daniel has a problem here, is it? What's Daniel's problem? Well, you know, when they open up the list of all the wise men, guess what? Daniel's name's on the list. He's got a problem. And I don't know if they're doing this in alphabetical order. He's got a big-time problem because his Babylonian name starts with a B. We're not going to be very long getting to Daniel. As soon as we get through the A's, then we're going to be on to Daniel. Now they're looking for Daniel. They're looking for his three friends. How does Daniel respond to this? Look at verse 14. Then Daniel replied with what? Prudence and discretion. Prudence and discretion. It's really important. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes. Listen to this verse. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Listen to those words. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Ecclesiastes 9.17 While Nebuchadnezzar is wigging out and blowing a gasket and seeking to destroy his wise man, Daniel is answering quietly, with prudence and discretion. He asks, uh, he replies in verse uh, 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 15 uh, to Arioch, the, cap, the king's captain. He says, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch explains everything to Daniel. In verse 16, Daniel buys a little bit of time. Uh, he went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Okay, then what's Daniel do in verse 17? Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to his three friends. Verse 18, he tells them to seek what? Mercy. Tells them to seek mercy from God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Okay? Daniel and his three friends agree with the wise men in, in one respect, no human being can show the king his dream. They just can't do it. Now, of course, they disagree with the wise men in a couple of other respects. There aren't gods, plural. There's but one God. And if you look at verses 10 and 11, and really verses 10 and 11, I, 
I, I would submit to you are really the key verses to this whole chapter. You know, the Chaldeans, they say, they, they say to the king, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Then in verse 11, he says, that they say that the king, the thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. This is where Daniel and his three friends part company. They say, oh, wait a second. We know a God who dwells with flesh. The true and only God. And they go to the true and only God. And they call on Him for mercy, don't they? And what is the result? Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. And if you skip down to verse 23, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. You have given me wisdom and might. Have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. There's two different approaches here to problems. The world's approach ultimately leads to anger and anxiety and death. But notice... Daniel's approach, and we're calling it Daniel's approach simply so we'll remember to go to Daniel for it. It's the godly approach is really what it is. What does it lead to? It leads to worship. Daniel is worshiping. He's thanking. He's praising God. Because God really does dwell with flesh. He really does dwell with flesh. Now, um, I, I would submit to you that verses 10 and 11 are really key to understanding this whole chapter. You know, in the process of preparing this message, I, I, I read all kinds of materials. And many of those materials go right to the dream. Now, they say very little about the, the they, they explain the narrative up to the dream, but they go to the dream and then more specifically, they, they center on trying to interpret the historical fulfillment of the dream. Lots of ink is spilt, whether the fourth kingdom is Rome or whether Meda and Persia are separate. And you get into all of this, which I'm not going to bore you with all of that. We'll look at the dream next week. But listen, I don't think, I think we're missing the, com the complete point of the chapter when we do that. I'm not saying that the, the dream isn't important. We'll get there in its due time. But what we really have here is a contest between the world's approach and the godly approach. To life's problems and difficulties. It's a contest between the wise men of this world and the godly. We might even be more specific and say ultimately it's a contest between a God and His purposes and the forces of darkness that are opposing Him. I think when we begin to see that, now we're truly set up to actually see the dream and its interpretation the way Daniel would have understood it, which sets us up for next week. So we have this contest, which God is ultimately triumphant in. Okay, what are, we, what, are we, what are we to make of all this? How should we respond to this? Well, it's inevitable that we're going to face difficult problems, isn't it? But let's not side with the, the wise men of Babylon who say that the gods don't dwell with flesh. Those of you who have been studying the catechism on Wednesday nights probably are picking up on the covenantal language, language of this. And once you start seeing that, you'll start seeing it all over the Bible. The covenant of grace 
You know the great promise, Leviticus 26, 12. What's God promising that? What's God promising? I will walk among you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I truly will dwell with flesh. I think it's very interesting that the wise men say what they say in verse 11. That's key to this whole text. The God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, he really does dwell with flesh. And as we make application of this in our own uh, chapter of church history, we have even more. Think of Emmanuel. Think of this famous passage. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. So we're allowed to do this uh, in the summertime. I've been making a lot of noise about that, haven't I? These so-called Christmas passages. Emmanuel means God with us. Let's not compartmentalize that into December. We need that in August. Because we have problems in August. In fact, if, if it's true that every six months we're going to have some kind of problem, it's also true that at any given time somebody always has a problem. That's the fact, isn't it? I happen to know that right now in this small little congregation right here, there are a lot of tremendous problems. That's one of the reasons why I, I steered in this direction with the... With, with the application. We're facing these difficulties. How do we face these difficulties? How do we do this? Let's not do it like wise men of Babylon who really just, all you see is all you get. All you see is all that you have. The world's resources are all that's available. There's nothing else. No, let's do this the way Daniel does it. Do it Daniel's way. Do it the godly way. Emmanuel, God with us. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus this morning, you are not alone. You are never alone. Even when you're kicking and screaming rebellion and you feel like you're alone, you're not alone. That's how we survive these problems. In Daniel's case, his problem is being taken care of. Daniel, his life... The life of his three friends are being spared, but that's not always the case. Let's not think that's always going to be the case. We'll get opportunities to see this again through uh, the book of Daniel. Sometimes that's not how it works out, but even when it doesn't work out that way, God is still with us. God is always with us. So the believer's perspective is Emmanuel. Now, a couple of concluding thoughts, and we'll wrap this up. And through the whole course of this Sermon, I could give you the impression with this message that I don't believe there's any truth to be heard from the world's wise men. I want to qualify that. I, I'm not saying that. We do learn things. I don't know if we should eat eggs or if we shouldn't eat eggs. I really don't know. That's not my area. Uh, the argument I heard is all the cholesterol is in the yolk. I don't know. Alex knows better than I do about these things. I don't know. Um, but somebody probably does, and it's one of the wise men. Um, you know, sometimes we have problems with our cars. We can't figure them out. Uh, we have to seek someone who knows. Uh, there are people out there who know how to fix these things. They may not be believers. If I needed heart surgery, or if a loved one needed heart surgery, I, 
I don't know that my first consideration would be whether the surgeon is a believer or not. My first consideration is going to be do they know what they, they're doing? Have they performed a lot of successful operations? Are they good at what they do? Why? God has given extraordinary knowledge and extraordinary uh, wisdom to people who are outside of the covenant of grace. Why has He done this? It's because of His common grace. But one word of caution. When we listen to the wise men and women, do so with your Bibles open. And as you do that, you're going to see there's truths, but you're also going to see that many of those truths are conditions and falsehoods. You're going to see that because they're coming from a completely different worldview. Remember last week, we looked at Daniel. He's, he's in a strange new land. He's in exile in Babylon where the worldviews are completely different. And I made the application that as believers, we are in a strange land. Our worldviews have changed. Here we are dwelling in this culture of conflicting worldviews. So we need to do... We need to listen to these wise men and women with our Bibles open and discern their words by the Word of God. Second thing is, shamefully, we too often face problems the world's way. We could listen to a message like this and say, well, that's really basic. I had all that figured out. I didn't really need that message. Oh, really? If anybody's thinking that, you really need this message. You need it bad. Because we so default to the world's ways so subtly, so quickly, before we know it, we're full of anxiety, we're getting angry, we're jumping up and down. Why? We're not handling things with prudence and discretion. We're thinking like the world and we're reacting like the world. That's what we default to, isn't it? You know, the, the elections are going to be coming up and we're going to be hearing all of this stuff and... Uh, um, some of the stuff that we're going to be hearing is even going to be coming from the church, the evangelical church, that really if we elect the right person for office, our problems are going to be solved. And uh, listen, I'm not diminishing the importance of electing the, the best candidate. I'm not diminishing that. Don't, don't take me to be saying that. But, but listen, if America wants to prosper, it needs to take and forget a minute about who the next president is. It needs to choose the right God if America wants to prosper. America's in this mess because it's choosing the wrong God, the wrong gods. If America wants to prosper, choose the right God. Choose the right God and the rest of this will, will fan out. You know, I know that there would be a number of individuals sitting here this morning if I, if I turned the pulpit into, into a, a, a place of political activism. There's a lot of people in the evangelical church that are very politically active, and I'm not saying anything that that's wrong, but I am saying this is a wrong place. It's a wrong place. I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm not to use this for political activism. That's a wrong thing to do. But here's, here's the power of salvation for all those who believe. If you preach the gospel, guess what happens? The gospel informs your politics just like the gospel informs everything else. Amen? Lastly, let's think about all the proofs God has given us of His sovereign power. You know, when we're walking through a tough problem, it's really helpful to remember the resurrection. Why is that so helpful to remember? Because it takes our minds off of the 
fact that there's more to things than just our problem. You ever notice the consuming nature of problems? They so consume us that we think this is the sum total of it all. When we're in the midst of, 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 of a problem, it's like, okay, this is, this is it. This is, this is it. There's nothing else beyond that. When we think about the resurrection, we think, well, you know something? This really is a temporary issue. It's a significant issue, but it's a temporary one. If we're in Christ Jesus, we're headed to a bright future where there will be no more tears. God has got this under control. He raised Jesus from the dead. He, is, he has been victorious over evil. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. He's victorious over it all. And by thinking about the resurrection, it helps us put that in perspective. Does that make sense? A lot of times when people come to me and they say, I've got this problem. Now, this is one of the first steps I go with. This is one of the very first things that I do when I'm trying to help someone get through a problem, is to put the problem in perspective. First of all, it's temporary if you're in Christ. A lot of times, I don't have to do anything else. After that, a lot of times, that's enough for a person to say, oh, my goodness, you're right. Yeah, sometimes just knowing it, it's, that it's temporary. If you're in Christ, it's temporary. We don't live that long. We're not here that long. Life is not that long. This is not the sum total of it all. Is it? No. Look at all the proofs God has given us. Consider all the promises that He has come through with. Consider the fact that His love is never dimmed. And lastly, lastly, Emmanuel. Don't forget Emmanuel. You know that Christmas passage? Make it a... Make it an all-season package. Make it an all-season text, not just a Christmas text. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He is Jesus. He is Jesus. He is Jehovah's saved. He is God with us. Because too often we find ourselves thinking like the Babylonian wise men, don't we? Like we're all alone. Nothing can be further from the truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that are ancient, yet they speak to us as if they were written, written this morning. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would be pleased, oh, Father, to work these words into our hearts, oh, Father, that we would see, that we'd see the world's approach to tough problems so well, that we would discover our own hearts whenever we're, we're walking down that path, oh, Father, that we would see that so well that we could we could see ourselves tripping and stumbling in the same. And that we would see Daniel's approach, not because it's unique to Daniel, but because it's the godly approach. It's Christ's approach. It's, it's the godly approach. But that we would see this old story and that we would gain hope from this old story. That no, Lord, you are with your people. You have covenanted to be with your people. We are not alone. Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, Father, with you with us, we can face any, any problem. We can face any uncertainty. We can face any trial. For, oh, Father, you are greater than any problem that could ever overtake us. So for that, oh, Father, uh, we rejoice, which is ultimately what approaching problems your way will lead to worship. It will lead to praise. It will lead to thanksgiving. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's
Senhor, a todos os